Hello everyone, we are so excited to bring you season four of Attach starting September 27th. Before we kick off the season officially, here's a special live recording we did this summer in collaboration with the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. We really hope you enjoy this special live recording of Attached and we will be back on the 27th with a brand new episode one of season four. Enjoy. Next time he does what he knows he doesn't think is right, it, you know, it makes a world of difference. It's like, I don't agree, but I'm going to do what you said because the last time I didn't. And <laughs> we're still stuck in traffic because we went left the next time anyways. But still, I felt really, really <laughs> appreciative of the influence that he took, knowing that's not really what he wanted to do. So vindicated. Yeah. You use the word appreciated. You felt vindicated. <laughs> yeah, vindicated. <laughs> appreciated all of it. <laughs> tomato, tomato. special live recording of Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sassan Nagash at San Diego State University. We are so excited to be hosting a live recording of Attached with all of our AAMFT friends. Today, Sassan is going to bring us a conversation about the relationships of entertaining power couples um, on the hit comedy series, Ted Lasso, one of Sarah's uh, very, very favorite, and I must admit to mine too. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss an academic article titled Connect or protect social class and self-protection in romantic relationships. Then in good or bad advice, we're gonna talk about quotes from a fictional couples therapist in one of my latest reads, a super highbrow novel, might I add, um, titled Love Her or Lose Her. If you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at attachedpodcast, or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. You can also live stream all of our previous episodes there at attachedpodcast.com. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, there are so many out there. Uh, please rate and review it. It helps get our numbers up. Um, all right. Are you guys ready to go? The enthusiasm yes. is palpable. All right, here we yes. go. So first up is pop and culture. Assassin, take it away. Yes, thank you. Um, so uh, like Dr. Uh, what do you want to be referred to? Who do you want to be referred to? Patricia. 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 All right. Like, Patricia was uh, referring to, there's a hilarious um, comedy series, uh, Ted Lasso, and I think it's just wrapped its second season, um, and it stars Jason Sadakis. It's an Emmy-winning comedy series, lots of awards, um, mostly because of the, the hilarious acting, um, and it's based on an American football coach hired to um, coach a British uh, premier soccer team and really doesn't have that background, but goes there anyways, and builds community in the most interesting of ways. Um, all the people, when the show starts, 
have really no interest in being about relationships connecting, but you know, quickly into the series, you start to see relationship form. And the talent is amazing on the show. And the relationships sort of run the gamut. Uh, there's sweetness, there's complications, there's serious relationships on the show. Um, and a lot of them are really just filled with like hilarious, um, awkward moments. Um, my favorite is Keely and Roy. Uh, Roy Kent um, is played by Brent Goldstein, and he is on the show, a newly retired soccer player and trying to sort of figure out where he wants to land post-career. And he meets uh, another character on the show, Keely Jones is the character played by Keely Hazel, and she is this up-and-coming publicist who works um, for the premier soccer team on this series. So they're not the best of fits in the beginning, for sure. Both really are finding their way, both sort of in their career. She's trying to really establish herself. He's trying to establish himself post-soccer um, career. And they're going through these professional growing moments um, and happen to find each other in the process. And as they develop more romantic feelings, they also have a bond that they start to build that really takes form in really, um, I think, interesting ways. And I thought we'd bring it up today because just some of the dynamics that I notice on that show and how I think um, we might think to interpret it and look at it. So this relationship grows from two people who tolerate each other to two people developing sort of this beautiful dynamic of really encouraging each other, um, demonstrating a lot of respect, really pushing each other to do a lot of self-exploration and empowering each other, um, which I think happens in other shows, but there's something about the way they do it on this show that seems to stand out. He's this sort of grumpy, full of curse words, tell it how it is kind of guy, and she's sort of the opposite of that, um, really presents as sweet, careful with her words and really bubbly. But despite these differences, they have an energy on screen that's captivating. And two things stand out in particular for me. One is that they're each other's greatest cheerleader, right? Like mm -hmm. I said, they're going through these growing moments in their lives and their careers and sort of in the process, not really sure where they fit, how um, you can sense that there's moments where they're not sure if they have sort of the talent um, and question their own worth and value and sort of have some confidence sort of related issues that come up. But when they're with each other, you can really see that they really do see the best in each other. And um, it's great to watch this couple on screen uplift each other and empower each other to explore change and growth and what's scary without necessarily pushing each other too far, sort of forcing sort of the other person into places and spaces that feel really unsafe for them. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that really stands out about their dynamic is that they really do accept influence from each other, which is what I want to sort of focus on today. Um, many of you may be familiar with this concept of accepting influence. Um, I originally heard about it when I was reading Gottman's work, um, but there are others who have talked about it as well in their research, uh, yeah. including Peterson, who, who's written about it a lot with the military community. But the thing I wanted to really focus on is what it really means to accept influence and how sometimes when you talk about influence, we don't always talk about it in terms of what it offers um, in terms of benefits to couples. Mm. So, you know, there is this idea, I think, with accepting influence that um, it means that 
someone is trying to control your ideas and what you do. Um, but really, it's not about that as much as it is about collaborating, being open to someone else's ideas. Um, and really, my first question, I guess, is what do you all think healthy influence looks like in a relationship, sort of before I give my ideas? So I, I always think in terms of um, what kind of context in the relationship um, can host healthy influence. And it really is each person feels safe and that the partner who is trying to influence you, you feel that they have your best interest at heart. Like you know, and you can feel that they appreciate you, that they know that you are good, right? So, because if someone, if my partner thought that, negatively about me, had a lot of negative thoughts about me, and then was trying to influence me, that is not something that I would be interested in accepting, right? But that context of um, positivity, and Newman certainly talks about that as well, um, that has to be kind of like the growing environment to be able to accept influence, this belief that they love me and they have my best interest um, at heart and believe at my core, I am a good person. Woods, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say um, uh, something, I think, along those lines exactly, that um, when I'm hearing you sort of use the language accepting a partner's influence, I'm hearing also sort of this key piece about um, acceptance in general, right, that I can trust that my partner accepts who I am. And what I really love about this couple is I feel like there's this sort of slow evolution in what they learn about each other. And um, like Roy Kent's um, ladies night doing yoga with these like older ladies in the community and that she learns about these pieces of him and vice versa. And they're incredibly accepting of each other. So I think um, in line with what you're describing, Patricia, that helps to create safety. And then it's much easier for me to be in that vulnerable position of um, allowing a partner's influence to impact me, to shape who I am, to inform what I think. Um, I can be more vulnerable when I know that you're accepting of all of these pieces of me. Right. There's something about like, I know you have a, a real sort of understanding of who I am and therefore oh, yeah. I can be really genuinely open to your yeah. ideas and opinions, right? Because they're coming from a place of centering me, mm -hmm. right? And centering my needs as opposed to your own. Yeah. And so I really like that. Yeah. And there's something about, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's a capacity, almost a vulnerability we're kind of getting out mm -hmm. there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And there's something about when there's this ability to really feel like a felt sense of like, I think you really understand, even if it's just about this particular issue, right? I really feel like you understand where, what's important to me, my value sort of around this idea or what I'm exploring, then the openness becomes a lot more easier, right? Yeah. You don't sort of feel really protective of this thing that you have to do or this way you have to do it. And I think about all the moments where we instantly hear somebody's opinion and go, no, that's not for me. And I think about like, really, how much did I feel that those individuals who I immediately dismissed in terms of their ideas really had an understanding of what was important to me, right? So sometimes I feel like it ties back to, do you understand me and my values and beliefs mm -hmm. too? And if so, then we sort of get the common goal here for me. And, and in that case, maybe it's the path in which I'm taking I'm trying to get there that we don't necessarily, you're trying to influence me on. And I like that openness. It's not easy though, I have to say. <laughs> and so speaking of not easy, I'm really curious 
um, what are the barriers you think exist to really being able to do this? Because there clearly are. <laughs> a lot more people would be doing it if there weren't. It's <laughs> a really good point. A lot more people, we'd all be like perfectly open and honest and vulnerable if it was super easy to do, of course. <laughs> um, what's, what are your initial thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about relationship history, uh, sort of specific to this couple. Um, Keely has sort of her own relationship history that's um, uh, sort of informs how she and Roy are together because he's very aware of some of this relationship history of hers. And um, I think it looks a little bit less tricky for her as this like fabulous character on TV. But um, when we have experiences, I think where uh, partners are maybe not respecting of our boundaries or, or not sort of understanding uh, our value systems and what's important to us, that can easily sort of trickle into the next relationship we form and the next relationship we form, right? That um, uh, I think, especially in the context of Roy and Keeley, uh, that's what comes up for me first, that that can really be a barrier to um, uh, feeling safe in the next relationship. Yeah, and kind of piggybacking off of that, you know, former relationships, but that of course includes family of origin as well. The examples that we've seen in family of origin of how that vulnerability looks and how it is either treated or mistreated as we grew up, but also thinking about the media and how vulnerability in relationships looks like in the media. Roy Kent um, and Kate Keeley are kind of the exception to the rule of how we see a lot of conflict and influence in romantic relations in particular play out in the media, not just scripted television like this is, but also mm -hmm. uh, reality television as well. Uh, so those are kind of messages that we're constantly being fed as to what that looks like, which doesn't necessarily always enter our brain as reality, but it is an example and it informs kind of us. So all of those kind of uh, messages from family of origin, from the media, all of those things that we see also, I think, to a certain extent, uh, inform and model for us what this looks like. So I think those potentially poor models of how to do this could also be a barrier for um, enacting this. Yeah, I agree. And there's something about, I think, how we talk about influence too, where it, it, it's more and more, especially as a woman, I feel like there's this idea that I have to empower myself, that the decisions that I come up with, the ideas that I have, have to come from me. Mm. Right. And sometimes this idea that I can turn to my partner and accept their ideas and be open to their perspectives, mm. that's not empowering, right? Because mm. it's not coming, it's not self-driven. It's not something mm. that I'm necessarily um, adopting or considering on my own. And I think that is something, you know, we have to look at too, is like, what are the messages we send when we tell people like, you know, really stand up for your own needs and think about what you want and, you know, just focus on you, right? I hear yeah. that. And thinking about, well, you could do all of that, but still stop to listen and hear about what are maybe other ways to approach something and our partners, right? If they do have our best interests at heart, I think it's really worth, right? Turning to them and saying like, what do you think here? And so being really open to that, as hard as it is, I think there's also an opportunity there to really build connection when we do that. When we accept influence and our partner sees that, they feel valued too, right? It's like, there's something about what I'm offering my partner that is supporting their needs and that feels good, right? So I think it can be really helpful for both partners to do that and to yeah. feel like I took the idea or opinion of my partner mm -hmm. and it really benefited me. That also builds warmth and connection, I think. So 
I think really when we think about the messages that we send our children and, you know, when we're talking to friends and when we're talking about like, who do you turn to to maybe bounce ideas off of? Or when you're not sure about something, is it okay to turn to a partner and be like, what are your thoughts here? I think those are things we could probably be doing more with each other. Yeah, I think regardless of gender identity, I think it's really critical to uh, rely on the community that we built around you that we can trust and try and build your community around you too, which is obviously a much bigger picture than we're talking about um, specifically with uh, Royal and Kaylee, but I think it is a grain of that for sure. Yeah. Well, and then last, I'll just say this about accepting influence. Just if, you know, when we talk about barriers, it's always nice to identify some pathways, <laughs> right? How do we actually <laughs> do this? Yeah. Um, and so just a couple things. One is just the idea of sort of asking yourself, are you really staying open, right? When was the last time you've turned to your partner and um, were really open to their ideas, um, you know, and what it looks like for you to be open? And asking your partner, like, how much do you feel like I do take your influence? How much value do you feel like I show towards your ideas and what you have to offer in terms of some of my needs? And the other thing is to listen with curiosity to the other's point of view. Um, and as hard as that is, um, you know, that can mean just really allowing for the person to really say what they say and reflect back what they're saying without sort of building your own sort of um response, right, um, too quickly into that. And then last, just really thinking about if you can't say yes to something they're trying to um, uh, suggest in its entirety, right, maybe saying yes to parts of it, right? So, you know, it doesn't have to be the whole thing that you say uh, you accept, but maybe aspects of it or letting them know that maybe not in this context, but I could see it being something I do next time or in this other way. So just not shutting them down completely, um, I think is an important other, um, you know, thing that I would recommend. Mm. So I love all of those uh, recommendations for paths to um, accepting influence. Right off my brain, I thought my anxiety went up. As you guys know, I oftentimes have like random anxiety peaks because I was thinking like, oh my gosh, we have three kids, two full-time jobs, a farm to run, my in-laws next door. Like when the heck am I going to have time to have this conversation now too, right? <laughs> Which probably speaks to I'm doing too much. I, I, I understand. I understand this separate is a, a separate conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then I calmed myself down. This all happened, by the way, Cecil, while you were saying that. Um, <laughs> and thought like, you know what? This doesn't have to be a daily conversation. This could be something that happens once in a blue moon, maybe over a glass of wine when the kids are in bed. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a multiple hours long conversation. This could be a five, 10 minute conversation. So these are pathways to acceptance, but they're also kind of small, you know, they can be. They can be. And I'll give you a really quick example of how small and significant they can be. You're driving down a street with, and this is based on a real true story. We're driving to a baseball game. We're late. We're backed up in traffic. He says, no, we go right and we're backed up in more traffic. Never let him hear the end of it because he didn't take that little piece of influence <laughs> and turn left. The next time he does what he knows he doesn't think is right, it, you know, it makes a world of difference. It's like, I don't agree, but I'm going to do what you said because the last time I didn't and <laughs> we're still stuck in traffic because we went left the next time anyways. But still, I felt really, really <laughs> appreciative of the influence that he took, knowing that's not really what he wanted to do. So 
Vindicated. Yeah. You use the word appreciated. You felt vindicated. Yeah, yeah. Vindicated, appreciated all of it. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Six of one, half a dozen of another. <laughs> to move on to our academic deep dive segment and discuss a new article titled connected or protected social class and self-protection in romantic relationships written by doctors lydia emory and eli finkel at northwestern university and recently published in the journal of personality and social psychology we've talked many times before on attached about how our context can uniquely impact our experiences in relationships from work-related stress to family of origin we actually just talked about that a little bit to life stage economic inequality and socioeconomic status may be another powerful predictor of romantic relationship experiences social classes increasingly divided in the united states and affect what resources we have access to how happy people are and how long they live actually so why not our closest relationships Indeed, lower SES individuals are less likely to get married than their higher SES peers, and when they do marry, research suggests that they describe their marriages on average as less satisfying, more conflictual, and they're actually more likely to end in divorce. But as these researchers highlight, there is no social class differences in what people want from their relationships. SES does not determine our drive to be close, connected, and understood by our loved ones. One way to potentially explain the greater relationship challenges that lower SEC couples experience may be to explore how their actual lived experience of lower SES uh, status, which may include uh, lack of certainty, lack of safety, and possibly risk of being taken advantage of, uh, may impact our sense of self. Lower SES contexts are marked by job insecurity, housing instability, food insecurity, and insufficient access to healthcare, if not quality healthcare, if they can get mm -hmm. it, all of which in the US can quickly become a downward spiral of poverty. The author suggests that these, quote, precarious environments may contribute to potential dual effect of where lower SES individuals might be more connected to other people and responsive to others' needs while also feeling the need to protect themselves. In other words, the risky experience that comes with economic inequalities could contribute to people weighing how they will seek connection while risking being hurt or exploited versus looking out for themselves but risk being disconnected. If people living in lower SES environments need to prioritize keeping themselves safe, these authors ask, does that self-protection against vulnerability undermine the couple relationships. Sarah, protect me from letting my imagination just spiral out. I think I'm currently writing 10 papers just based on that. Um, and connect me uh, to what these researchers found. Amazing. Yeah, so just as you suggested, Patricia, um, they are specifically looking at whether individuals in lower SES context uh, will self-protect more 
than people living in higher SES contexts and whether this is associated with lower relationship satisfaction, especially when they're feeling vulnerable. So they did this in three studies, of course, because no paper is ever just one study anymore. Um, so they- I think My anxiety just went up again. <laughs> this is, I'm so sorry. Um, what I think is important is they operationalize SES as not having a college degree versus having a four-year degree or more. They do circle back and test this again with income, but I think important uh, caveat about that is often used as a proxy for socioeconomic status, but probably not um, the sole piece of information we need, right? Um, they do point out that a lack of college degree is tied to unemployment, poverty, job insecurity, et cetera. But, um, so in the first study, what they did, they were specifically looking at um, uh, in terms of self-protection, what happens when people try to gauge how committed their partner is to the relationship, which can be a potentially risky judgment because you're not exactly necessarily sure, right? You're sort of, you can report on your own level of commitment, but then you're having to um, also report on what you think your partner's level of commitment is, which could be sort of judgy, right? Sort of tricky rather. Um, so they did this looking at seven waves of data across two years in a dyadic study of 120 married couples uh, in the Chicago area. And what they found was that social class did predict bias in how people estimated their partner's commitment. So individuals in lower SES contexts um, consistently underestimated their partner's level of commitment because it was dyadic, right? They had reports from both partners. They could see exactly how committed their partners were saying that they were. And um, uh, people who were uh, in lower SES contexts were consistently saying they thought their partner was less committed than their partner was actually saying that they were. Whereas um, participants wow. who are in higher SES context, their estimates were fairly accurate, actually. Um, so that was sort of their baseline study to, they're just getting started, they're just warming up. <laughs> um, so uh, then in their second study, they had a sample of over 1,100 people recruited online. Um, and they had a specific sort of self-protection measure, which I was interested in because I was sort of wondering, like, how does that equate to how we explore this idea when we're working with couples? So they're asking questions about when I think about the future of my relationship, I think most about the bad things that might happen, um, which is interesting, too. Uh, and what they found is that lower SES individuals reported um, more concerns about self-protection in their relationships. Uh, and that was associated with decreased relationship satisfaction. So what I think is the most interesting is their third study. They use a community sample of 108 couples from the Chicago area again, 63% um, white, 24% African-American. There's a lot more diversity in this sample than there are in their prior samples. Um, and they have to have been in a relationship for at least six months. Uh, average was like eight years or something. So it was a much more varied sample than their prior few studies. Um, and these participants completed an online survey uh, and then participated in a 14-day daily diary study. So every day for 14 days, for two weeks, uh -huh. they report on each of these aspects. And then six months later, they do a follow-up survey, unless they separated and then they were, it appears they were booted from the study. Oh my. So, I know, feels like that would be also helpful information, but it's a different paper later. Uh, so they assessed self-protection um, just like they had in the prior studies, but they also asked in that daily diary reports about whether people felt wary of overly trusting their partner. Oh, that does feel like you're tapping more into self-protection in terms of what they think is important, right? How nervous am I am about trusting my partner too much? It could have 
lots of reasons, but um, so what they found is across that two week span of those diaries, um, participants in lower SES contexts were more likely to self-protect across the two weeks. They were um, more likely to underestimate their partner's commitment. So they've replicated a few of these findings that they had already found, right? Um, and they also found that uh, lower SES was associated with greater self-protection relationships on any given day that in turn was associated with decreased relationship satisfaction the next day. So if I said I was you know, especially self-protective on Thursday, today I'm not feeling so hot about my relationship, but that's only true for people who are coming from a lower SES context. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, it is really interesting. And so there's and some causality there, not necessarily just a happenstance of correlation. Right. Perhaps. Yes. Right. Because they're looking at this over time and how this sort of unfolds. But they also found that... Um, this was especially true in the context of people who reported feeling chronically vulnerable in their relationships. They reported in these daily diaries that they felt high levels of vulnerability in their relationships. Uh, that connection was even stronger between um, being in a lower SES context and feeling especially like I need to protect myself and maybe not trust my partner as much. And that was associated with lower relationship satisfaction six months later. So it wasn't just the day the next day, right? Where I'm like, maybe it's especially raw. Um, yeah, yeah. It's also six months later, which is I think also really interesting. And they're controlling for things like perceived stress, other kinds of outside stressors that could be experienced if you're living in what they call like precarious and turbulent environments. Right. Um, and they also then tested that all over again with income instead of education and found the same thing. <laughs> I guess they just chose to out the gate and go with education, but... Um, what I think is really interesting about, I think there's a few sort of really interesting um, potential takeaways from this research, which is super brand new. Um, but I think what's interesting is they're using vulnerability um, in thinking about it as if it's problematic. Mm. Like when I'm vulnerable in my relationship, that's a problem. I think a lot of couples therapists use vulnerability as like, this is what we're trying to achieve, right? right. Like we are inviting people to become more vulnerable with each right. other. And we just talked um, about how we like that in Roy and Julie's relationship. We like their vulnerability. hundred so, percent. Yeah. They're so beautifully, wonderfully vulnerable together. And these <laughs> authors are like, uh, there's a risk. Um, so I think it's really interesting because um, if we're asking partners, couples who are in these sort of chronically stressful, um, vulnerable, precarious environments, to then be vulnerable in their close relationships, are we always honoring how challenging that might be? Uh, um, and when is vulnerability a problem or a risk versus a goal? And um, how do we sort of intentionally think about that? Um, and are we actively talking with couples about weighing that self-protective factor, that feeling of needing to keep myself safe? and weighing that against connection and that drive for connection that everyone has. Um, I think what's really important is, um, and the authors do a really lovely job of pointing to this, that the self-protection piece is adaptive, right? That this is vigilance that occurs for a reason. If they are at higher risk of all of the things that you describe in terms of um, economic instability uh, and these sort of really powerfully growing economic uh, divides in social class and economic inequality, um, and then we're asking them to come into their couple relationships, it makes sense that some of that vigilance occurs in that context too, right? So how do we differentiate between vigilance in the outside world and vigilance in the relationships and that double-edged sword of what could be resilience in other spaces, right? And um, 
potentially a, a barrier to connection for couples. Uh, so those are the pieces that came up for me, especially um, really very interesting paper. Phenomenal. And I also love those conclusions you kind of have me uh, uh, flabbergasted. It's just so uh, because of your brilliance. You're, I'm flabbergasted because of your brilliance. Well, I didn't write this paper. I'm just sharing it with you. <laughs> no, but it's a really, really good point. When do these characteristics that we have that use uh, protective and they're helpful and they're good, when do they become this double-edged sword basically um, of being problematic? Is it a contextual thing? But when the contexts are happening simultaneously, a, a couple within a lower socioeconomic uh, environment, that it's not necessarily a flexibility that we learn about families adapting between different situations. It's the same, right? It's like one consumed and the other. It's a little bit different way to think about flexibility um, mm -hmm. than what we typically do when changing environments. Yeah, I think one of the things that as a therapist too, right, who sees clients and couples actively, it reminds me of just how careful we have to be with some of this work because what serves someone, what has a function, right? And serves someone maybe well in the general sense um, may not be serving them in their relationship. And how do, you know, what does it really mean to ask people to shift in and out of that? Like it's mm -hmm. much easier said than done, right? Especially when it comes to what people have used to cope and survive in one context that works and then asking them to sort of shift out of that in relationship. It's like the brain is malleable, yes, but like, how, you know, it's asking a lot of human beings, right? Which also speaks to why sometimes this work is really hard that we do as couple therapists because we see the function in certain contexts of something being utilized and in other contexts, we see how harmful it could be. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it just goes to say that, you know, I don't know that all couples are sort of, um, clearly we know this, but, you know, set up for success in the same way in terms of relationships. There's certain sort of experiences that are going to have to make some couples work even harder to really build connection in relationships. So it really, as a therapist, sort of reminds me to be mindful of that more and more, right? Um, and when you think about socioeconomic status, it's not a factor that I always have at the forefront when assessing mm -hmm. and thinking about like, mm -hmm. What are couples working with or you know have to consider um well and I think, yeah to be fair that accessibility piece couple therapy might not be accessible to many mm -hmm. low ses mm -hmm. couples as well so mm -hmm. we may be seeing very very few of these couples come through our doors sadly mm -hmm. yeah it's true and when we do you know for those folks who you know offer pro bono or sliding scale services, just being really mindful of, mm -hmm. you know, contextualizing things beyond just sort of what you typically lean on in an assessment. And rather than just use whatever income they're reporting to determine like how we are approached, you know, that's not also the way to do it, but just to be really curious about exploring when you do see, you know, potentially um, certain information in their assessment that suggests maybe there's factors I need to consider here when thinking about how do I approach my work. Beautiful. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to 
be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and all those numerous top 10 lists that are all over the World Wide Web. But this is going to come as a shock. A lot of it just actually isn't good for our relationships. Uh, probably not as much of a shock as I thought. Anyway, um, this is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. Today, I'm going to present you with several quotes, excerpts, um, from a book called Love Her or Leave Her by Tessa Bailey. Um, it's part of a trilogy. Here is the image. Love her. Oh, you can't see it really well. Love her or leave her um, by Tessa Bailey. Um, I 100% enjoyed the heck out of this book. So I am in no way want you to think that reading these quotes diminish my adoration for this book um, and for this author and for this series. I love it and I would read it again. But Sometimes, you know, things need to be in the public. Um, that being said, a rough plot of this book is that a married couple who have grown apart over the years um, as a last ditch effort, Rosie, the wife, presents Dominic, the husband, um, an ultimatum of therapy before divorcing. Um, thinking he would be opposed to it, she picks the, quote, hippiest and woo-woo-wooiest therapist she can find in their town um, in an effort to make Dominic not fulfill his promise to fight for their marriage. The therapist that Rosie chooses, uh, his name is Army, and Dominic attends these sections. Uh, spoiler alert, they do end up helping in the long run. Okay. Uh, this is kind of like a rom-com type book, right? So everything ends well, so fear not. So here are the quotes during these sessions. Just I'm curious about your thoughts on how maybe therapists are presented to the world. Um, maybe some of the things that the therapist says, just whatever kind of, uh, you know, comes to your mind, let me know based on science and also, you know, therapy theory. Here we go. Army, the therapist, says nearing the end of their first session, just FYI, he says he's going to give them four sessions, and at the end, he's going to tell them if their relationship is going to make it or not. We don't have to talk about that technique at this point. We're going to talk about this one. I just wanted to give you some excerpts. Sure, sure. Um, so he says towards the end of the first session, we build resentments towards our loved ones. Sometimes we're not even aware of them, but they grow so strong. They prevent us from remembering what we love about our partner in the first place. Maybe one or both no longer wants to give their significant other the satisfaction of showing their amusement. So the other person stops trying and the laughter dies. What do you think? Thoughts? Woods? Yeah, I mean, I would agree that this is, am I agreeing with Army, who's clearly, you said four sessions, so clearly uh, either very gifted or on a really big power trip. Um, so I guess I would say that, yes, science would support, right, that negatives can grow quickly, bigger than positives. And I think especially if you're, I think you had said that they don't want to give their partner the satisfaction of showing their like affection. I, that's vengeful. Mm. That doesn't make for strong relationships. I think, I think science says that. I think anybody could probably say that. Um, but uh, I think also the last piece that you shared about um, then eventually sort of as partners withdraw and sort of stop trying that that is especially when relationships can fall apart some version I think that's how you said I think 
that uh, lack of like interest and engagement and connection, right? I guess that makes some sense what the service is saying. Oh, you're saying you agree with ARMY? Is that no. what I'm hearing you say? I mean, I feel like you're setting me up for failure here. Um, but uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm good with it for now. Okay, Susan? For now, I love it. <laughs> Just in this context, right? That's right. Um, so I agree with what Sarah said. I think resentment is a pretty complex or multifaceted emotion that can be like a mixture of like quite a lot of strong, like a disappointment, disgust, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really, one starts to feel that and one can't really work through that with their partner, it really does color the way they engage the person and Laughter, I can imagine, is one of the things that becomes sort of harder, like to be amused by your partner, right? Mm -hmm. To be amused by someone. There has to be a sense of like comfort with them. There has yeah. to be a sense of like vulnerability. Peace. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't know many times that I laugh at someone who I am resentful of, right? It's very hard to do so. And we know that laughter. Right. Unless it's be... in like a cruel way. But yeah, yeah, I <laughs> yeah. get your point. Exactly. You're right, right. You know, you're in real trouble then. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's called like belittling and contempt and all those things. Yeah. All right, so we, yeah. we like it. Okay. Um, we, we do, yeah. Okay, we like yeah. it. All right, all right. And the next one. Okay, let's talk homework. Army clapped his hands together. Rosie, Dominic needs acts of service to feel appreciated. I will leave those up to you, but let me reiterate that as your therapist, I feel strongly that sex should remain off the table. Rosie bit down on her tongue and forced a smile. Dominic dropped his face into her neck and groaned. Dominic, please continue to exercise your vocal cords. Find out what gives Rosie the words she needs to hear. You did a tremendous job of that today. Oh, oh I don't like it. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm not even sure why. I just, um, uh, so. Uh, I get down. I know. So acts of service, um, it sounds like referencing like, love languages right yeah I would say that that is the primary therapeutic technique that already uses his, <laughs> sure. his love languages because of course and also telling them they're not allowed to have sex sure well okay well four sessions is all it takes um it's a new approach to couples therapy uh so I mean there's sort of not a ton of evidence supporting uh love languages is how I would sort of um typically talk about that that for some people it can be um, really helpful lens to understand themselves, understand their partner, communicate sure. their needs, and that's important. Um, and also I did totally like one week ago, read a brand new study that looked at couples matching on love languages. And when they do not match, the scientists found uh, that their relationship satisfaction was impacted, but even more importantly, showing up um, and responding to your partner in a way that matched their love language mm. was predictive of satisfaction and, and sort of, um, I think what they're tapping into and what they were saying they were tapping into is this empathy factor, right? If I can empathize with where mm. you're at and what you need, and I shape how I come to the relationship in that way that you find most satisfying, you can call it whatever you want, right? Love language or any vulnerability. <laughs> that's right. Um, then that's going to be valuable. So. so what I'm hearing is that no. you like what Army is saying here? I knew it was a setup. Uh, <laughs> yep. Okay, fine. You did it twice. Uh, I'm not even sure how. I didn't like how it was said or framed. I didn't like the quote, maybe, but sure. It's some brand new science. We'll see where it goes. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Sasson, what are your thoughts? 
Well, I'm going to sort of take a different, my focus on that statement is a little different. Um, Again, sort of from my therapeutic like lens right now and thinking about how I sit with clients, at the moment that Dominic dropped his face into his neck and groaned, right, there was an immediate, I didn't see a recognition of that. And as a emotion-centered therapist, I am looking for things that are happening in the room. And so sort of glancing over, you know, moving beyond what is happening in the room to me can be hurtful, problematic, and many other things. So that's where it's sort of when I thought, oh, Armin, no good. Like stop right there, check in, see what's happening. (laughs) Don't just, uh, you know, focus on your prescription and whatever intervention Mm -hmm. you're trying to implement here and, and think about what the client is experiencing in the moment. So that's what came to mind as you read that statement. So army, uh, uh, no good. Uh, no good. Didn't like that aspect of army. Um, okay. <laughs> the next one. So remember the context of the four sessions and then he can decide uh, whether the marriage is worth it or not. Eventually army stood and paced to his desk while Dominic and Rosie remained unmoving on the pillows. Um, they're not chairs. They sit on a bunch of pillows to, for comfort. Of course they do. <laughs> um, listen, could be yeah. comfortable. I would be, sure, sure. I could be down for it. Anyway, sure, sure. he scratched a few notes on his legal pad and moseyed over to the office door, opening it. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, Team Vega, which is how he refers to the couple as a team and their last name Vega, which I thought was cute. <clears throat> he said briskly, but we've arrived at the end of our fourth session. I'm afraid your marriage isn't going to make it. The couple started to protest. Like I said, I've been doing this last chance couples counseling for 30 years, and I get a pretty accurate read by the fourth and final session. He drummed his fingers on the door. We gave it the good old college try, folks, but a resolution is simply not in the cards. Okay, so clearly, like I'm now on the record, I'm not personally into whatever intervention he's attempting here. Um, uh, I mean, I guess he held, actually, I was just about to defend him and that's not right either. I was going to say, technically, that's what they consented for. He proclaimed his decision at the end of four sessions. But it feels like uh, you're sort of describing some like attempt at a strategic intervention here. Yeah. Uh, Right? That like... um, and also, I sort of really worry if this is a couple that's come to therapy uh, as part of an ultimatum, they're potentially at high risk of separating anyway. So probably I want to be really careful about not contributing to that. Um, uh, and I probably don't need to pull any tricks um, if what I'm trying to do is sort of convey that I believe in the strength of their relationship um, uh, is how I would clearly respond to ARMY now. You told him. That's right. <laughs> I agree. I think initially it was like a very uh, concerned, visceral, like, no, don't say something like that. But then I thought, well, perhaps our army here is being strategic. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you said it there. there. Like it may, perhaps it's a strategic, you know, approach, which in and of itself, you know, within the field is a bit controversial, but I think, you know, it can be also one of those things where when somebody tells you, you can't, you think, you can, right? And you want to prove them wrong. But I think it, there's a huge risk involved in that, like Sarah had said, in terms of like this couple already being pretty vulnerable to um, in their relationship. So that strategy could also backfire. So um, yeah, I, I, I would risky. say, yeah. And I'm really 
uncomfortable with when therapists also are incredibly directive and um, sort of approach a relationship um, from a very um, expert like lens of knowing the relationship better than the couple do. So um, yeah, I would say if, if there's some strategy going on intentionally, we can talk, but otherwise ARMY is, uh, yeah. Well, and this therapist had the luxury of being written by an author. So of course the couple responded beautifully to his strategic move. <laughs> they ended up together happily ever after. So um, I don't think we all have the luxury of being written by uh, author of rom-coms. <laughs> Just as a caveat. Um, thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on all of those social medias. Start following us on your favorite podcast app um, about any relationship advice you've received and you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it. Thank you all so much. All right. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. I really enjoyed listening to that. And uh, I think this was a good opportunity for our network. Um, okay, so we've got about five minutes for questions. Um, I'm going to pass a couple along that have come through. And any Perfect. that we don't get to, again, to you who are joining us, feel free to, you can probably send this to the attached folks at their email. You can send it to us at the couples at AMFE address, and we'll see if we can get to them on. But uh, to start off, we had a question. Um, uh, when there is a lack of self-awareness regarding resentment, how can you call it out and bring it to the surface to manage the issue? I'll leave that to the LMFTs. Um, I could speak to that first. Um, so, you know, resentment is something that is really hard to acknowledge, I think, especially in front of a partner, right? I think we worry sometimes if we say that out loud, just how hurtful it could be, but also just acknowledging to ourselves that our relationship is in this place that can feel really scary um, and at risk even, right? So there's a fear there if I acknowledge resentment, which is really strong that um, maybe it signifies something in terms of where my relationship is at. So I think it's something as a therapist, I approach really slowly and with a lot of um, understanding that, you know, we have to sometimes really start by building that trust in the therapeutic context that the things that they talk about in there are going to be hard and painful, but really also instill some hope in through talking about that there is like healing that can be done, right? So I think resentment is an emotion that one can get to in therapy, but I wouldn't as a therapist probably try to access something like that if I sense it, right? Too early without really giving a couple of sense that we could talk about these things openly mm -hmm. with each other and it could be safe too. It could create this kind of vulnerability that is building on something. And so, to provide sort of a, a short answer to that question. All right, awesome. Um, I'll ask, I, there was another question that I think was kind of in a similar vein. So, I'll go to that one. Um, it said, again, I think this is referencing the deep dive bit. So with couples where vulnerability is more of a risk than a goal, um, off the cuff, how do you think you would approach treatment? And if you got that sense? Well, I think one thing that the authors in that paper do a nice job of is talking about research evidence for that self-protection piece, um, but also that people living in lower SES context also um, 
uh, on average tend to be sort of more oriented towards um, uh, building community and building connection and uh, being responsive to what other people need. And those are incredibly key strengths to healthy partnerships, right? And so um, I think I sort of, uh, in some ways might um, frame that value, that strength, uh, that um, drive towards connection uh, sort of first um, and point to that piece. Cause I think uh, where vulnerability, they're sort of framing vulnerability as potentially problematic. Um, there was uh, the other double-edged sword was that like they had so much strength and resilience, right? And they're oriented towards connection, um, which in truth, right, all of us yeah. are. And to build onto that, it, some of the work that I've been doing with families and couples in uh, rural um, Appalachia um, is looking specifically at a breast cancer population. And one of the surprising things that I found on uh, one, a current paper, um, and some other papers too, is kind of a reverse effect where high family functioning is linked to like higher levels of pain and symptomology. So one of the things I've started to think about, and of course this isn't therapeutic, but maybe couples and family relationships, the strength of their family characteristics look different than what all of research, which you know is typically a weird population, more upper class, very white, it just looks differently. Like what is functional, what is healthy looks different um, than what we're used to. Um, so I also will gladly say, I don't know if we know the answer to that yet. Um, and some of the work that I'm doing with Sarah Woods and kind of continuing to do and explore, um, but going to what Sesson was saying, that's another reason to not be prescriptive um, mm -hmm. is because we just don't always know what is functional and what is healthy for that specific um, population given the context that they're in. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. That was great. Um, I think we'll do one more. Um, I'll ask you to weigh in on something that I've seen in a lot of shows. So, you know, there's this moment where, um, there's like, I call it a mic drop moment when I'm watching with my partner, where somebody will have had like all these thoughts and all these feelings build up for a long time. And they sort of just sort of like let it out on their partner. And then they like leave the room and their partner like the next day is this changed person and comes to them and is like, you were so right. Like this is, I've been wrong this whole time. And now let me come to you as this new perfect partner. And the relationship just like flourishes from there. Oh, the amazingness of screenwriters. <laughs> so <laughs> this is back to that, you know, if we had the luxury of being able to be written by a rom-com <laughs> author, right? Uh, so I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts. I'm like, so, you know, what do you think about it? Is that a useful trope in shows? Are there useful parts of it that we can pick out? I don't know. What do you think? Really good question. Um, I mean, I think, so that certainly is a trope. Is it a useful one? Probably not. What are things that we can gain from it? Perhaps that disclosing to your partner is a good idea. Maybe not the Coke bottle effect where it kind of, or the volcano effect where it all comes out at once, but disclosing and talking to your partner about your vulnerabilities, yes, it's good. The capacity to change, yes, we all have the capacity to change and that's an important trope. But you're right, it's a beautiful arc. I cry sometimes during it. That's the hard thing about this podcast is these are things and shows and TV shows that I love so much. But when you think about reality, no, they don't work, right? 
We have the incredible capacity I... to be defensive as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that that's creating a whole lot of safety to just yeah, dump yeah. all your stuff on a partner and walk out. Yeah. Sasson, are you going to disagree with both of us and say you love that trope? I don't. In theory, it sounds nice to be able to just let it out, right? Let it go, have let it be it received, I mean, and change to happen. It. Yeah, yeah, let it go. But in reality, I think like our emotional capacity to withstand a lot of information that can be painful to hear, we're not there yet. You know, the human mind, I don't think, has evolved to that place where one can really tolerate physiologically, emotionally, like yeah. psychologically, that kind of uh, you know, eruption, uh, so to say. So I think um, little bits of that, but in large um, waves, yeah, that's, you'd have to be pretty dynamic human being to really be able to take it in and then come back the next day ready for change. And if there is change, my sense is that it may not be the long lasting <laughs> kind, but. That's true. Or the change might be the relationship status. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, that was great. Um, all right. So that's unfortunately all the time that we have together today. Um, but finally, let's give a warm thank you to our incredible guests for their time, their talent, their expertise, and their wisdom. I know I've benefited from it, and I hope that you have too. Thank you, Drs. Robertson, Nagash, and Woods. And thank you to the incredible members of our network. Good luck as you go out there and try and change the world. Take care. Bye, you all. Thanks so much. Thank you.